Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. When you're a kid, you don't usually stumble across a book that will change not just your life, but potentially all of humanity. But then again, the story that you're about to hear is a little bit unusual, because most kids also don't go on to win the Nobel Prize. When Jennifer Doudna was in the sixth grade, she comes home and she finds on her bed the double helix by James Watson. Her dad had left it for her. Doudna lived in Hilo, Hawaii. Her father taught English, and she thought that this book, The Double Helix, was some sort of mystery novel, according to author Walter Isaacson. So she saved it for a rainy day, cracked it open, and settled in for a good mystery. And when she picked it up, she realized it actually was. It was a detective story about the secrets of life. And when she read it, she noticed the character Rosalind Franklin, who had done the imaging work that led to the discovery of the structure of DNA. And that's when Jennifer said, oh, girls can become scientists. In the book, the author, James Watson, tells the story of the struggle, as Isaacson said, to figure out the structure of DNA. Watson and Francis Crick spent the early 1950s in England racing against other scientists who often were using every trick they could to win the race to understand the code of life. Rosalind Franklin was doing groundbreaking research and taking pictures of cellular structures, but she had drawn some incorrect conclusions about DNA. When James Watson dropped by her lab one day, they got in a fight about whether DNA was a helix. He said yes, she said no. The conversation got personal. Franklin got angry. On his way out, Watson talked with her colleague, who showed him a picture that Franklin had taken of DNA. The picture turned out to be a critical piece of information that Watson had kind of gotten through the side door. Franklin had literally seen some things about DNA that he had not, though in his book, Watson would later speak of her in a somewhat dismissive way. You know, it was condescending the way that uh, James Watson treats Rosalind Franklin, calls her Rosie, even though she never called herself that. And the thing that Jennifer Doudna said to me was, I vaguely noticed it was condescending, but it was so eye-opening that a woman could do science that that's what really struck me. Watson and Crick published their findings in 1953. DNA was a double helix. Franklin, partially through her photography, had provided invaluable clues. In the early 1960s, so this is just about a decade later, the Nobel Prize was awarded to three people who had worked on the structure of DNA. That included Watson and Crick. It did not include Franklin. She had died a few years before at age 37 of ovarian cancer. Much of her photography of cell-level structures had exposed her to large amounts of radiation, though it's impossible to conclusively say that radiation caused the cancer. But Franklin, by figuring into the story of DNA, and by being a player in this book, The Double Helix, well, she had passed a baton to a child in America, a girl who was falling in love with science. This book was written in an interesting way because it really talked a lot about the human side of doing science and the personalities involved and the clashes involved. And I was amazed to learn that scientists were, uh, you know, very human. They had, they had the challenges they had to deal with in the course of doing their research. So it, 
really opened the door to, for me to think about how one could imagine doing science as a, you know, even as a kid growing up in Hawaii. Though Rosalind Franklin had not won a Nobel Prize, Jennifer Doudna would. And she would take the next step with the cellular instructions that all of us carry around. Doudna would help discover how we can change our own instruction manual, which would have ramifications for a pandemic she didn't see coming and might soon alter how much we're able to impact our own health and our children's health. I think CRISPR is best described as a surgical tool for changing the code of life. Walter Isaacson has spent years chronicling people who have changed our lives with their brains, people who sparked revolutions that fundamentally changed the world, that changed travel and war and leisure and work and just how we think about who we are. People like Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs. Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane University. He's a former chairman of CNN and the former editor of Time magazine. And he's the author, most recently, of The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. I talked to him back in March of 2021. He says Doudna, like many of the other people he's written about, felt distinctly like an outsider growing up. A lot of innovators. Steve Jobs was adopted and never felt really at home. You know, obviously, uh, Einstein being Jewish in Germany in the early 1930s. But for Jennifer Doudna, it was the fact that she was a lanky, tall, blonde girl from the mainland growing up in this small village in Hawaii in which all the other kids were Polynesian. And it made her think, how do we fit in? And I think that's one of the traits, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci comes from this small village in, you know, to Florence and he's gay, and he's left-handed, and he's born out of wedlock, and he's distracted. But he gets embraced by the Medici family. They love him, but he's always trying to figure out, how do we fit into this cosmos? And certainly Jennifer Doudna never lost that childhood sense of wonder and curiosity about how do we fit into this world. Is it that those people, including Jennifer Doudna, sort of that because they were outsiders or because they felt a, a little bit different, they looked at the big picture more than everybody else did because they were literally on the outside looking in? Or, Yeah, I think it's you want to say, I don't quite fit in, so let me be curious. Let me poke around for clues. And a lot of people like that have a, have a large sense of curiosity. I mean, I remember looking in Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, and it's like, why is the sky blue? And I'd seen that same question in the notebooks of Albert Einstein. Mm. Likewise with Jennifer Doudna, it's like, why do the shells curl the way they do on seashells? Or why does the sleeping grass curl when you touch it? Now, you and I remember, you know, when we were kids— uh, sort of being curious about something. And then, you know, we go on to something else, like, right. oh, there's a dead squirrel. But the yeah. thing about a Jennifer Doudna is I always want to unlock the secrets of life. So they go on journeys of discovery, and that's what I hope this book is, is that it's not just a biography. It's like, let's all go hand in hand, you and me and Jennifer Doudna and all of her colleagues and rivals, as we go on a journey of discovery. Well, I think one thing that's striking, too, is that, you know, m people are going to start 
thinking about the story of this woman, knowing many people like, oh, she won the Nobel Prize. But then when you peel back the layers, one of the curious things is she was not the kind of kid. She was a smart kid. But you just, you know, you talked about like her college counselor in high school is like, hmm, girls don't go into into science. She goes to Pomona College in California. She does really want to major in chemistry, but she's like, "Mm, people are really smart. I don't know if I'm up to this. That does not sound like slam dunk Nobel Prize. You know, I think a whole lot of the alpha males who won Nobel Prizes knew from day one that they were going to win a Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to go on a journey with somebody who both is persistent and driven but also has those normal insecurities that you and I have. And that's Jennifer Doudna, and I think that helps her because it gives her a sense of empathy and a sense of humanity that was all the more important when she makes scientific discoveries, but she has to sort of connect it to the humanities, to our emotions, to who we are, and she doesn't approach it as somebody who's got all of the answers. It also makes her a better scientist because, I mean, the essence of science is not thinking you have all the answers. It's thinking, what experiment can I do that might challenge my hypothesis, it might prove me wrong. So I'm going to get back to some of the kind of scientific race that she gets into that eventually does get her the Nobel Prize. But um, just sort of big picture, uh, you argue we're entering a new era, like that the beginning part of the 1900s was really dominated by the the findings of uh, physicists like Einstein. Then you had latter part of the 1900s, these these computer uh, nerds like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Um, but you say, no, now sort of the, the, the key turns and we're entering another era. Um, explain what you see coming. Well, I think we're entering a biotech revolution that's going to be 10, 20 times more important and exciting than the digital revolution that dominated the past 50 years. We're going to be connecting our ability to code microchips with our ability to code molecules. I mean, molecules are becoming the new microchip. And whether it's making an RNA vaccine to protect us against COVID or making a guide RNA that we program to chop up one of our genes and change one of our genes, this ability to manipulate the code of life especially when connected to our ability to use digital coding to process information, that's going to be the dominant uh, innovation revolution. And it's interesting to me because they're all based on fundamental kernels of our existence that we discovered, you know, a little bit more than a century ago, which is the atom, uh, the bit, which are binary digits that can encode information, and now the gene. And this coronavirus crisis has certainly brought home the importance of understanding the biotech revolution. Let's pause for a minute right here. We're going to be back with Walter Isaacson. He's the author of the book, The Code Breaker, and we'll talk more about how this new approach to gene editing works and the race to figure it out and then how it might be used or misused. On our website, we're going to have more about the French microbiologist, Emmanuel Charpentier, who won the Nobel Prize with Doudna. She's someone who the journal Nature labeled the quiet revolutionary. Not that her path to fame is any less interesting or winding than Doudna's. More on her at our website, innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2018, a Chinese researcher changed everything. What once would have been considered science fiction had now happened. But science fiction, kind of like tiny devices that allow you to communicate across continents, well, it's got a way of transitioning into reality. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. Of course, the twin girls were not really like other babies because if they had been, the entire world would not have breathlessly covered their birth. He edited early stage embryos. And when you do that, when you edit those or reproductive cells, you're not only editing the patient's DNA, you're editing all of their children and all of their descendants because it becomes inheritable. That's author Walter Isaacson, who argues the scientist, Chen Kui He, unmistakably crossed a line. And what he did was he edited the embryos of what became twin girls so that they would not be susceptible to catching the virus that causes AIDS, because he wanted to protect them from AIDS. But what it did was create these inheritable edits And, you know, it was way premature. He got it a little sloppy. But even if it had been safe, it would have been sort of this shocking thing that we're now making inheritable edits in the human race. You back up for a minute, though, and you think, wait, we can do that? We can make it so that newborn babies are unlikely to ever contract HIV? We can edit their genes? Isaacson writes about this story, which caused a firestorm, but gives you a preview of what's on the horizon, in his most recent book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. He says, scientists were planning to use this newly understood tool, CRISPR, to help people struggling against disease. But not before those people had been born. Well, at least not yet. Everybody was planning to use CRISPR to help cure genetic problems in living patients. For example, this past year, it's been used to cure people who have sickle cell anemia, which is a simple genetic mutation. But the implications of what happened to those twins in China in 2018, they were huge. And Jennifer Doudna, who had helped scientists understand the system that can be used to do this editing and who won the Nobel Prize for it in 2020, she understood what she had uncovered, and what it might mean for us, our children, our grandchildren, and on and on. And when they showed it working in a test tube, she and her graduate students and Emmanuel Charpentier, her research partner, it suddenly dawned on them that, oh, now that we figured out how this could work, we could turn it into a tool to edit our own DNA. So what is this system that Doudna worked on that she raced against others to explain? It's called CRISPR, like the word, but without the E, so C-R-I-S-P-R. And if you want to understand it, the very best way might be to take a look at yogurt. Now, the reason that we have yogurt is because of bacteria. Yogurt comes from the combination of milk and bacteria. And much in the same way that we've spent the last year battling a virus, bacteria have been at war with viruses for a long, long time. Well, you know what? Bacteria are really, really smart, or I say that jokingly. But for a billion years, 
they've developed a system that knows how to fight off each wave of virus attack. So how do they do it? And can we borrow this system to evade viruses ourselves? Well, about a decade ago, scientists in different parts of the globe started getting interested in this question. Little by little at first, and then the competition got fierce. And right out in front were people who knew billions of dollars depended on how bacteria fight viruses. People who understood companies can rise or fall on how effectively bacteria are working. And the people I'm speaking of, of course, are yogurt scientists. Well, if you're looking for an industry that really needs to understand how bacteria fight off viruses, you're talking about the yogurt and cheese industry, the bacteria starter culture. And one of the things I love about science is that partly it's driven by pure curiosity, basic science. The people like this Spanish graduate student in my book who first discovered CRISPR and bacteria, he's driven by curiosity, but he comes friends and you know research colleagues with these two guys from France, one of whom moves to North Carolina, who work at a yogurt company. One of those guys, the one who moved from France to North Carolina, well, he got a graduate degree studying the fermentation of sauerkraut and pickles. Then he moved to Wisconsin, where his wife had gotten a job at Oscar Mayer. And he and his fellow yogurt scientists started to notice something curious. The bacteria that they studied, they were keeping copies of the viruses that had attacked them. Because what bacteria do is every time they get hit, with a new virus. They take a mugshot, a little sample of the genetic code of that virus, and they put it in their own DNA. And so you have these clustered, repeated sequences in the DNA of bacteria, and we call those CRISPRs. And so what happens is it becomes a record that allows them to chop up that uh, genetic material anytime the virus attacks again. So the bacteria knew They knew. When a virus came back around again, they knew how to fight back. They had stitched the memory into their own selves, and they had a whole system to do that. A system that Jennifer Doudna, working at the University of California, Berkeley, finally figured out. And that the Chinese scientist, Chen Kui He, only a few years later, would harness to make those twin girls resistant to HIV. I think it's a break from what was recommended by the report released by the National Academy of Sciences last year, 2017. Suddenly, a complicated biochemical system promised to alter life. And Doudna was on Good Morning America trying to explain to the public what the heck was going on. That encouraged an open and transparent approach to any uh, clinical use of human embryo editing that would involve careful uh, establishment of a process and following guidelines that were put in place by an international consortium of scientists. And I don't think that that appears to have been done in this case. You know, there are very few aha moments in science, but this was one of them. She had spent the years 2011, 2012 trying to say, what are the components of this system bacteria use to chop up the genetic code of attacking viruses. And it was pretty simple. It was just really three molecules. It was a guide RNA that said, here's where you go to chop, and another piece of RNA that helped uh, do it, and then an enzyme, sort of like scissors, 
the scissors, the enzyme light acts like a scissors and it knows how to chop. You put those things together and you get this system. The system, though, like lots of technologies, had all sorts of perils. Very early on, I realized, you know, as labs around the world began adopting the CRISPR-Cas9 tool for gene editing, it became clear that this was such a powerful technology that was very exciting on the one hand, but also could bring very profound challenges to humans who would need to figure out how to regulate the use of this technology. And I had a dream that I think really kind of captured that emotion, which was about being led into a dark room and invited to explain the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology to a very well-known person. And when that person turned around in his chair, I realized to my horror that it was Adolf Hitler. And she realized that, okay, this could be used for eugenics. This could be used to create a master race. This could be used for very dangerous purposes. And so the last part of my book is how she and ethicists and religious leaders have all been meeting to say, all right, we really love this technology. It's going to be great to cure people of these horrible diseases like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia and muscular dystrophy. But... Before we make inheritable edits that change our species, we're going to need some guidelines for when do you do it and when don't you do it. But, you know, it's interesting because it seems like um, even though, of course, as you talked about, the the Chinese scientist was had crossed that line um, and that's not what's accepted right now in medicine or in science, You, it's like you can hear the footsteps. So you, you can see what's coming, even though that thing may be done in a safer, um, you know, uh, sort of more uh, legal, you know, within the bounds of the law kind of way. But you can see a precursor of the future, it feels like. Absolutely. It'll be another decade or so before we can easily make inheritable genetic edits that will design our children safely. But that's why we all have to start thinking about it now, is like, what what are we going to do with this technology? And we shouldn't delegate it to the scientists. It, I think it's important because this is a wonderful, good technology, and it's important for us to decide, okay, we're not going to misuse it. So there's a whole cast of characters um, behind the discovery and the use of CRISPR, why did you decide to focus on this one particular woman? I mean, I, I should say, when you started, she had not won the Nobel Prize yet. <laughs> right. It didn't seem like an, like, it seems so obvious now, of course, but it didn't seem obvious, I'm guessing, at the time. Well, I, uh, the morning they were announcing the Nobel Prize, I thought, it's pretty early. It's only been eight years, but maybe it'll be given to CRISPR. And I got up at 4 a.m. to do the live stream from Stockholm. And indeed, she and Emmanuel Charpentier won. I was so excited, I called her, and she had missed the live stream. She had just found out. So, no, I didn't know she was going to win the Nobel Prize, but I picked her because as I was looking at this biotech revolution, here was somebody who had persisted and decided that women should do scientists. There were a lot of women focusing on what turns out to be the more interesting molecule, which is RNA. She and Jillian Banfield and Emmanuel Charpentier. And then she discovers a structure 
of RNA that allows it to replicate itself, which simply means it could have been, and probably was, the beginning of all life on this planet. And then she takes the RNA discoveries and helps figure out how CRISPR works. And then, of course, that becomes part of the new vaccines we have, which is using RNA as a messenger molecule. Right, right, right. And this all the Pfizer the, and yeah, the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. And, right? and then she turns her attention to looking at the ethical issues. So she becomes a perfect narrative thread. You know, and I like doing things, not science textbooks, but doing a journey about a person, doing biographies, because I think we can relate to it better. And she was perfect because she's such a great personality, so collegial, but also very competitive. And every aspect of the story from the Watson and Crick discovering DNA, and she fa that fascinates her, to discovering about RNA, to discovering about CRISPR and gene editing and the policy issues. Man, it just gave me a chance to bring everybody through the story in a way we can relate to, which is a woman making a journey of discovery. One of the things that really struck me about um, this competition to figure out CRISPR, how does it work, to publish about it, which I would say a lot of it was going on like 2010, 2011, 2012, would you say? Yeah, it's about 2012 when she and Emmanuel Charpentier do publish the paper that wins them the Nobel Prize, which is discovering how okay. CRISPR works and how you can make it a gene editing tool. So one of the things that struck me is like how competitive science feels, um, in, in, at least in your telling of it. Like people are working late into the night. You've got people on different continents who are like they'll work all day in California and then they'll write to somebody um, in Europe. And, and then that person will take over like when it's night in California, they'll take over. Um, I, I, I just wonder. I, I didn't realize science was quite this competitive. Is it usually? Yes. And you know what? Competition is a great thing. And if you read the Double Helix, this book that inspired her as a kid, it's about the competition of uh, Watson and Crick. They're competing against Linus Pauling in America, and they're competing against the lab of Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin, and they're all racing to discover the structure of DNA. Well, that same competition happens when Jennifer Doudna's lab is racing against the lab of this wonderful guy, Fong Zhang, you know, who's at uh, the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and he's racing to figure out how it works in human cells. And they're racing for patents. They're racing for prizes. But they're also racing because they're scientists, and they want to be the first to make a discovery. And sometimes we disparage competition, but boy, it's the spark that, as you said, keeps people working on the weekends and staying up late at night and working 24 hours a day. So I love that race. So if, you know, what we're looking at is the ability to edit DNA, I wonder a little bit about, in addition to the race for the Nobel Prize, there's also a race to capitalize on this. Obviously, there's like spin out companies all over the place. All these people have their own uh, little projects that they're working on. I wonder how much you, um, I don't know, worry that this is like a race for gold versus a sort of slow measured, um, what should the guidelines be here? Well, I think that most scientists who are involved in what they do are doing it partly 
you know, for prizes and partly for glory and partly perhaps for patents. But I really believe, and this may sound naive, that they're mainly doing it because they love the discovery. They love the thrill of figuring something out. And they were fighting to get patents when they were uh, doing gene editing tools. But one of the things that the coronavirus pandemic did is it helped turn people back, uh, the scientists back, to this notion that we really are doing this to help humanity. And so Fong Jang's lab and Jennifer's lab were racing to make discoveries, racing to be first, but then they were putting them in the public domain, putting them on open source platforms and saying anybody who wants to use this to fight coronavirus can. I think that became a reminder to all of them because they're involved still in patent wars. Well, let's remind ourselves, this is really why we're in science, is that we like making discoveries that can be helpful to humanity. And I think it will help, you know, I hope my book will help remind a whole new generation of kids as they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their careers to say, I get it. Science is a noble pursuit. Research is a noble pursuit. Medicine's a noble pursuit. And it will maybe, you know, inspire a few more people, just like the double helix inspired Jennifer. So when you talk to scientists and you've talked to, you know, many on all different sort of sides of the CRISPR revolution, when they think about um, how this will change the ordinary person's life 10, 15, 20 years down the line, what do you think they see? What do you think they know um, or imagine to be true that, you know, average people just have no idea? Well, first of all, let's say it's already happened, which means that last year, okay. a woman named Victoria Gray, and she's just one of many cases I could take, African-American woman from Mississippi who has suffered, as her family has, from sickle cell, got cured. They used CRISPR to edit the stem cells in her blood so that she was now producing healthy blood. Now, sickle cell is a dreadful disease, and it afflicts, you know, uh, blacks more than whites, and it's, a, you know, it, it's just really devastating. And so already... We're fixing diseases like that. And I think pretty soon, whether it's congenital blindness or even some cancers, which are being fought in China and at the University of Pennsylvania, or single-cell mutations like Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, we'll be able to cure those. Secondly, we'll be able to have antivirals that'll be much stronger and better than trying to get our immune system kicked into gear. And then eventually, I think, we'll be able to make sure we have a healthier species that maybe isn't susceptible to some of these diseases. So, um, you know, when you talked about the woman who had sickle cell, what does that, in sort of kind of high-level terms, what does that involve? Like, to, to, to make it that somebody is susceptible to sickle cell and then and then that they're not, what are you doing? Well, sickle cell just means you have a little mutation in the cell in the cells that you know make your blood cells in the DNA that makes your blood cells, and it causes you to have the type of blood cells that sort of look like a sickle, hence the name of the disease, which means they don't carry much oxygen. You double over in pain. So there are many ways to fix it. One is just simply edit your cells so you're making 
healthier blood cells. And that's what they do. Okay. And so when you talk about it with Huntington's, with cancer, it's that same sort of going in and surgically changing one thing, perhaps, and then you like the thing that was going awry is now going right. Yeah, I mean, you do it in a test tube. It's not something you do with a knife and a scalpel. The molecule is your uh, knife mm. and your scalpel. And what you do is use this uh, mixture, let's just call it. I mean, it's a clear liquid when you have CRISPR-Cas9 in a test tube. And you take human cells and you use it to change slightly the DNA of a human cell. And you can change the DNA if it's got one of the mutations for one of these diseases like sickle cell or muscular dystrophy. And eventually, we'll be able to do what the Chinese doctor did and probably shouldn't have done, which is we can do that in embryos or reproductive cells so we can make changes in our entire species. Now, you, you talked about the the scientists who tried to change basically the HIV, you know, make it so that these little girls could not get HIV, these little babies. Um, who will decide what is important enough to edit? I mean, you, you talked about sickle cell, you talked about cancer. I think a lot of people could decide like, okay, those are clearly bad enough that we're going to deal with them. But like deafness, blindness, depression, IQ, is there a point, is there an IQ that would be problematic and an IQ that wouldn't? Do you know what I mean? Like, who says, uh, yep, yeah, deafness, you can go deal with that, you know, versus uh, blindness, you sh really shouldn't. That's okay. We can. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's the question that I try to address after we go on this journey and discover this tool uh, is let's go case by case and try to figure out when are we comfortable using something that edits our genes. And when you say, who should decide, we should decide. And by we, I mean you and me and all our listeners. It's not something we should leave to the scientists or the politicians. And so I've, I try to go, it's a slippery slope, but you know the best way to go on a slippery slope is cautiously, step by step, preferably hand in hand. Right. And so in the book with Jennifer Doudna's ideas and my ideas, but also people like Michael Sandel, who you know, people who are philosophers or religious leaders, mm -hmm. to say, all right, I think we all can agree that Huntington's and sickle cell, let's just edit those out. And then as you say, let's take the next step. What about memory such as Alzheimer's? Well, you can do that, but in doing it, yeah. you can enhance memory. How do we feel about that? What do we feel about saying we want to change the eye color or hair color? Muscle mass is quite easy, actually. We've done it in mice already. There's a myostatin regulator, so to speak. If you change it, you get more muscle mass. What if people want to have stronger children? Okay. You can ask a George Church at Harvard, and he says, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. But me, I think we should mm. use it right now only to cure uh, things that are clearly diseases, such as sickle cell, and not use it to enhance our species. I think that's when you start getting into dangerous territory. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Walter Isaacson. He's a professor of history at Tulane University and the author of The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. 
We're going to be back for our last few minutes to talk more about some of the ethical considerations here and how this ability to edit our genes and those who come after us may change life as we know it. On our website, we've got more about the Chinese twins who were born back in 2018 and the scientist who used CRISPR to change their DNA and who ultimately found himself in prison. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to a conversation I had with author Walter Isaacson back in March of 2021. He has spent years chronicling people who changed our world, from Albert Einstein to Steve Jobs. Though his most recent subject is somewhat less famous, she did win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020. Her name is Jennifer Doudna. And what she won for, Isaacson argues, could have implications far more profound than, let's say, the iPhone. She identified a gene editing system called CRISPR, which has been used already to treat diseases like sickle cell anemia, and it has been, somewhat surreptitiously, used to create babies who cannot contract HIV. We have entered a new reality. But what does the scientist who opened the door to that reality think of where we are? Well, I think her thinking has evolved, and so has my thinking. And the coronavirus helped evolve the thinking. I thought, okay, should we be using all these technologies? And I said, well, bacteria use it to fight off viruses. You know, maybe we should uh, feel free to use it. And when she first started, she had a visceral reaction, like I did, and probably you did, which is, hey, I'm not sure I want to mess with Mother Nature this way by editing our genetic code. But then she started meeting people who had heard about her discovery, and they would show her pictures of their young children and say, you know, this person, uh, our our little baby has uh, muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis or is going to die soon because of this or lead a horrible, you know, painful and die young as a kid uh, as their muscles atrophy or something. Can't you do something? What can you do to fix this? And so I think she began to feel, well, instead of worrying about is it moral to use it to fix our genes, she might say, well, is it immoral not to use it when we have certain cases? I mean, every other species use all the tricks and wiles they can figure out, including bacteria, uh, in order to do things like make themselves healthier. We should use our own ingenuity to do so But as I said, it's a slippery slope. So let's go step by step very cautiously. Well, it's interesting, too, always that question of should you mess with nature? Because, I mean, we're like we're very far down that road, right? Whether it's like breeding wheat for thousands of years to get exactly what you want or using smartphones or whatever. We have I just got I just got my coronavirus vaccine, you know. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, you know, when Louis Pasteur figured out pasteurization and when Fleming figured out vaccination and when Salk figured out how to solve polio, 
we're messing with Mother Nature, but Mother Nature was good enough to give us a brain to say, all right, you can develop tricks just like every other species developed tricks in order to survive. Um, do you worry at all that, you know, obviously there's a cost to everything. I mean, like a, a financial cost and um, that that it will be the wealthy who say, you know, I want my child to be taller or smarter or 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 just even just less sick. I don't want them to be able to get AIDS, you know, like we were talking about that the Chinese scientists worked on um, or I don't want them to be able to get Huntington's or whatever. And that. Uh, poor people, whether it's in the U.S. or in other places in the world, just they will not be able to do. I, we already see that with IVF, right? If you if you want to talk about something that already messes with nature and that rich people have access to, and generally speaking, poor people don't, um, that's a good example. And then this, I could imagine, as being another kind of layer of that, not just getting IVF, but getting a few tweaks uh, while you're doing it to make thing, you know, make that baby healthier. Yeah, I definitely worry about not only having the inequalities that exist in our society make it that some get to use this technology and others don't, but that this technology will encode in our species the inequality. There'll be some who can afford yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, uh, right. to have uh, children that have been tweaked. And that's what Brave New World warns us against, you know, by Huxley. That's what Gattaca, you know, the movie warns us against. So we have to yeah. figure out ways to make sure this is equitably distributed because what Jennifer Doudna has done is right after it's been used to fight sickle cell, well, I mean, that's a costly thing to edit somebody's stem cells and then reinsert them in the body. So she's got a whole team looking at how do we do that for far less cost. So yes, like everything in life, but this one even more so, we want to make sure that it's equitable in the way we do it so that we don't create sort of two types of humans, those who can afford genetic uh, you know, editing and those who can't, especially when it comes to really bad diseases. You, you write a little bit about, um, you, you know, we talked about these three revolutions, like the physics revolution and, the, and like, you know, Einstein was the leader there in the early part of the 1900s and then computer revolution um, and now this kind of biological revolution. Um, and you say you know, there are more women here. Um, but when you went around and looked at, you know, lab benches, there just wasn't as much diversity as you'd hope. Um do you worry that we are leaving out groups of people when, as we enter into this really important next revolution? Yes, definitely. And it's happened to all the innovation revolutions in the past, is that people have been left out. And certainly the digital revolution is male-dominated and white-dominated and everything else. The yeah. good thing about this revolution is that women are not only equally represented, but sometimes at the fore. I think 60% right now of people doing uh, studying biology and doing research biology are women. So for the first time, you're having in history an innovation revolution that in many ways seems to be led by women, including the main characters of my book, Jennifer Doudna, Manuel Charpentier, Jillian Banfield, and others. However, when I ran around from lab to lab and conference to conference, there were very few blacks. There were very few people of color. And in that way, it resembles the digital revolution. And I think 
that we have to try very hard, because this is even more personal than the digital revolution. We have to do all we can to make sure that this innovation revolution that will be the first half of the 21st century is inclusive, not just women as well as men, but blacks as well as whites and people, you know, of all ethnic backgrounds, because we're dealing with the human species. We're dealing with the diversity of the human mm -hmm. species. We need people from the diverse richness of our society all to be participants in this. Well, one of the interesting things about the computer revolution, too, is that when you look back at some of the original pioneers, like people like Grace Hopper, um, but both black and white uh, were women. Some of the first people who were, they called them computers at the time, were women. But then when you look at who made the money in the revolution, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Steve Jobs, they really weren't women anymore of any, of you know, of any race. Right. And we're now like in Internet, you know, uh, Women's History Month. And I've always felt women have sometimes been written out of the tale of science and technology. I wrote a book, The Innovators, which begins and ends and is framed by Ada Lovelace, who in the 1840s comes up with the concept of a computer algorithm. And Grace Hopper is the main hero of the book. But most people haven't heard of them, just like Jennifer Doudna when she was in sixth grade, had not really heard of any many women scientists. And even Rosalind Franklin, who's a scientist she discovers in the book The Double Helix, she had, you know, kind of been uh, minimized in the history of science. So one of the many things I hope to do with this book is it gives us role models, because if you don't have role models, if you don't realize, okay, we can be a part of this, then people feel left out. I, I just wonder, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but how has you you talk you write about this idea of the year of the plague, which we've kind of lived through? How has it to you altered how you saw CRISPR and the idea of editing DNA and um, and what might lie ahead? I mean, did this did this year did this past year um, was it a paradigm shift for you? Absolutely, and I think it was for a lot of, I hope it was for a lot of people. First of all, it made me realize I thought basic uh, curiosity-driven research was really cool and important. And then I realized, boy, I'm understating the case. You know, this is saving us from the coronavirus. Secondly, I thought it was kind of appalling, you know, the idea of the Chinese scientists editing uh, the human genome to make it less susceptible to viruses. Well, I still think that was uh, premature, it was messy, it was sloppy, but the idea of making us less susceptible to viruses, hey, if bacteria are allowed to do that, we should be allowed to do that. So I became more open uh, to that as well. And I just became open to the fact that all species, large and small, great and small, they all use what Ever techniques and wiles and tricks they can to survive. And, you know, nature and nature's God and their infinite wisdom have evolved a species that's able to understand its own code. And that species happens to be us. So I want to use it really, really carefully. But I quit having a knee-jerk reaction that, oh, we shouldn't do things, you know, that might uh, affect our our you know, genes, 
because sometimes our genes, when they cause us to have sickle cell or Tay-Sachs or something like that, sometimes our genes aren't being very kind to us, and we want to try to make ourselves healthier, just as we did when we first discovered vaccines and when we first discovered inoculations and pasteurization and bacteria and many other things. Uh, we should use these tools but connect them to our humanity so we use them for a moral purpose and we don't get too much hubris. We don't think, okay, let's start rewriting everything. We just think, okay, let's fix things that are serious problems, but let's have some humility uh, and not go messing with Mother Nature totally. Walter Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane University. He's the author of The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Walter, thanks for being here. Always good to have you. Wow, it's great to be back. And it's, you just have a wonderful show. And I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you want to hear a part of this conversation that you missed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to the show and listen each week. We're also on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.